with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tougher, even if they don't. Today is February the 13th, 2013, and this is episode, what episode is it? 1070 of the Survival Podcast. Tomorrow is Valentine's Day, guys. I've warned you, if you screw it up, it is a survival topic. You'll find out. You'll be using your survival skills to live in the woods, in the rain, because you forgot Valentine's Day. I even put up a uh, a logo by an 11-year-old girl that's uh, the daughter of a listener on Facebook that's Val, the survival podcast icon, with a heart behind him. Just to remind you, I've done my civic duty, jack out on that one. What are we going to talk about today? We're going to talk about the economy in sort of a roundabout way. I've got a guy named Craig Rowland I'll have on in just a moment. He is the co-author of a book called The Permanent Portfolio. It's based on the late Harry Brown's long-term investment strategy. Harry Brown, of course, being a huge figure in the libertarian movement and a former presidential candidate uh, as a libertarian. And we'll have uh, Craig on in just a moment to tell us all about his new book, and uh, his process or his uh, his methodology of investing. And uh, we'll do that in just a moment. Before we do, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. Sponsor of the day number one today, Harvest Eating, the illustrious globe-trotting Chef Keith Snow, at least uh, continent-trotting, who's just moved his uh, family from uh, the Carolinas to the wild west of Montana. And uh, he did that for a variety of reasons, and one was so that he could get more involved in local food movements, and that's huge in Montana, because Chef Keith teaches you to cook seasonally and locally. If you don't think uh, cooking's a survival skill, live on MREs without getting creative with them for a couple weeks, and you'll change your mind. And Chef Keith will teach you to make cooking not just a survival skill but a life skill by cooking seasonally and locally and learning how to use technique over recipe. He has an awesome podcast and a great website and some great products. Check him out today at harvesteating.com. If you're not subscribed to his podcast, it's one I really recommend that you subscribe to. Uh, next up today, Western Botanicals. You know, when I started Survival Podcast, almost immediately as the audience began to grow, I started getting questions about supplements, colloidal silver, which is eh, it's okay, but not what it's made out to be, and a million other things. And I'm a big believer in natural remedies. I really am. And I'm especially a big believer in them is long-term tonifying effects and, and using them in acute situations when necessary. And always going to what nature has given us before what man has made in a lab. And, you know, turning to modern medicine when we have specific needs that modern medicine is better of addressing. But I've also always had a problem with the entire supplement, herbal, etc. industry because it's full of bullshit. Frankly, that's the only way I can put it. I know some people don't like when I say words like that, but it is. It's full of crap. It's full of baseless claims. 
it's a complete disaster. And, and yet I was able to find a company like Western Botanicals that won't BS you. They won't lie to you. They'll provide you what you need. And if you call them up and go, I have cancer, what should I do? They're going to tell you, go see a freaking oncologist. That's what you need to do. Um, we can provide you some things that maybe will supplement your therapy, but, you know, go take care of your illness. You know, if you call them up and said, my husband has a yield sign in his spleen, they'd be like, why aren't you at the ER? We have no herb for that. But for most of the aches and pains and, and, and little things that we deal with throughout our lives that many people use harsh chemicals for, they have answers for that. And they have real people that will take your call and help you make a good decision. Everything you'll find there is either organically grown or wild-crafted. Uh, their, their view or their mission in life is to have an herbalist in every household. They'd like to help you become your own herbalist. Check them out today at westernbotanicals.com. They also have a great discount program. It's $50 a year. You get 25% off everything they buy. They give it to you your first year for free if you're a member of our support brigade. And if you want to keep it after that, they give it to you for half price. So they're a big supporter of the show, not just as a sponsor, but as one of our premium vendors in the member support brigade. So when you need something like turmeric for your aches and pains, consider going to Western Botanicals first. Uh, last but not least, do consider joining the member support brigade. If you do that, you get exclusive uh, content available only to members. You get discounts like the one I just told you about from over 30 different supporting vendors, not just sponsors, but uh, multiple vendors that provide discounts. And you'll help support the show at 18.3 cents an episode. That's what $15, $50 a year works out to. If you're military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty or prior service, or a first responder like, say, a paramedic, and you email me at jackatthesurvivalpodcast.com with service discount in the subject line, Uh, and tell me who you are and what you're doing, or if you're prior service, who you are and what you did. I will email you a discount code that will save you even more money on your membership. Please do that before, not after you join the Member Support Brigade. You guys are supposed to be procedural in those fields. Procedure is before, not after you join. And with the housekeeping wrapped up, I'd like to introduce our special guest now, uh, Mr. Craig Rowland. Uh, Craig is the co-author of a book called The Permanent Portfolio, Harry Brown's Long-Term Investment Strategy. He's going to discuss that new book and uh, the long-term investment strategy that he uh, recommends. And uh, I'll say, as I introduce Craig, I'm not telling every, and this is, I have to clarify this, because people think if I bring a guest on, I am basically saying, um, I'm blessing them with some kind of Buddhist chant and saying that you should do everything, single thing that they say. Um, I think this is an interesting investment strategy. Personally, I'm going to look deeper into it, making it maybe part of what I'm doing or allocating some of my investments this way. Uh, in many ways, it's very much in sync with what I, what I believe and what I do. And uh, my recommendations on precious metals are definitely very similar here uh, with a few differences and for a few different reasons. Okay, so again, I want to be clear. I'm telling you to look at this, to consider this, to see if it makes sense for you. I'm not telling you throw about throw away all other investment strategies and jump on board with this because I have a guest on. My view of my job at the Survival Podcast is to bring you as much good, solid information with a solid basis to it as possible from all walks of life so that you can take what you want Take what you get from other places, assemble them into your own life code, live your life your own way. Okay, so I'm not saying anything negative or directly positive about this. I'm telling you that it passes muster as being solid, sane advice, and it's up to you what you do with it. And with that, I'd like to say, hey, Craig, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Well, thanks for having me on. I've uh, listened to your show for a number of years. 
Well, hey, look, um, we're going to talk about investing today, and maybe a, maybe a contrarian approach uh, to some, maybe not to others. It all depends. Uh, but it's based on a guy named Harry Brown's long-term investment strategy, and you're co-author of a new book called The Permanent Pro- Portfolio. Can you tell us just a little bit about that book and uh, your, your co-author in it? Yeah, uh, The Permanent Portfolio was a strategy uh, invented by the late Harry Brown in the uh, late 1970s, along with um, a couple of other teammates of his, uh, Terry Coxon and, and John Chandler. And this strategy was built out of their need to protect their own wealth. In the 70s, Harry Brown became very famous because he wrote a book called uh, talking about the coming devaluation of the dollar in 1971. And he basically predicted that the U.S. would come up the gold standard, gold would allow to float in price and would go through the roof. And that, in fact, is actually what happened. Uh, he later admitted basically he was lucky you know, making that call. It could have happened yeah. earlier, could have happened later. Uh, he's very insightful that way and very truthful. And he said he needed a way to diversify and protect his money because he knew the inflation at the time was probably going to come under control. So he and his team set out to come up with a way to invest that would basically widely diversify their money into four major asset classes, uh, stocks, bonds, cash, and gold bullion. And this was designed to basically weather any economic condition you come across from the most plain average to the most extreme. And over the past 40 years, the portfolio has had a compound annual growth around 9.5%. Worst losing year it ever had was about minus 5% in 1981. And in the real estate crash of 2008, just because that's more recent for most people, it was down maybe 1% or so, where the rest of the market was down almost 40%. Yeah, because, I mean, you talk about a 9% return, and, and people that are in the investment community go, well, you know, I can do that with garden variety mutual funds. But there's a, there's a risk aversion portion to this with this type of allocation, correct? Yeah, that's correct. And what I found over and over again when um, dealing with this issue is that um, what you, you brought up, loss aversion, is actually a behavioral finance thing, which basically says people feel the pain of a loss more than they do the pleasure from a gain. So most investors, they all think they could pull down double-digit returns. Everyone always thinks they're smarter than the markets. But you know, when the market deals out the 10, 20, 30, or 40 percent losses, well, all of a sudden they get scared out. They might never return, or They'll buy back in right when the market's at a new high again because they think it's safe, and that's just at the right time for it to crash, take even more of their money. So what the permanent portfolio is designed to do is to basically smooth out the volatility. You're always going to have one asset that's doing very well, and you're usually going to have one asset that's doing very poorly. But the total return, the total value of your portfolio is still climbing. So even though gold may be doing well and stocks are doing poorly, it may flip the next year where stocks are doing well and gold's doing poorly. But the end result is your money's always growing, and because it's not volatile, you stay in the game. And it's very important when you're investing to stay in the game because you never know where returns are coming from or when they're going to be handed out. What do you mean by the term permanent portfolio? Is it sort of an autopilot investment type strategy where once you have this allocation, you're not really doing much with it? Yeah, that's exactly it. You, you take your money and you split it up four ways, 25% into um, a broad-based stock index fund, 25% into uh, U.S. Treasury bills as cash, 25% into U.S. Treasury long-term bonds, and then 25% into physical gold bullion that you could store in a number of ways. And you basically look at it once a year. If one of the assets has gone up to 35% or more in value, 
you sell it back down, you take those profits, and you buy everything back to 25%. If one asset has fallen in value to 15% or less, then you take the profits from the other assets and buy it back up to 25%. And again, you do that about once a year. And by doing this, you can limit your losses because you're really only exposed on average to about 25% to each. Even if that asset were to crater, say you take a 50% loss one year, you'd only portfolio would only be down about 12.5%. And that assumes no other asset has gone up in value to offset it. And what I mean by that, for example, in 2008, the stock market on average lost about 39% or so in value. But the U.S. Treasury long-term bonds were up 30-35%, and gold was up about 5% that year. So when you add them all together, you end up with basically that 1% loss. So you're always going to have an asset that's almost always responding to the market. And that's what the portfolio is based on. These assets are chosen because they respond to certain economic conditions in the market, whether it's prosperity for stocks, uh, deflation for the bonds, high inflation for the gold, or a recessionary situation uh, for the cash. So there's always some asset that's going to be doing pretty well. So, you know, it's basically an annual or semi-annual reallocation, but I'm not really changing the funds. I'm just moving the money. So if gold's you make it easy for people, if gold was up 20% and stocks were down 20%, I take my 20% profit in gold, roll it into stocks, and I maintain my allocation at a quarter, a quarter, a quarter, and a quarter. You can. That, that's the simplest way to do it. If you just want to do it once a year, um, you know, if you're a taxable investor, you might not want to. You might sure. want to stick to the 35 percent bands because you don't want to pay unnecessary capital gains. But if you're in a tax-free fund, you know, you could just go in once a year just to make it easy. Take your money, divide it by four, and make it 25 percent each, and rebalance the whole thing, and that would be perfectly fine. And, and then I guess a way to avoid tax consequences for people that don't like tax-deferred vehicles for all their money, because I do not like tax-deferred vehicles for all of my money, yeah. is Obviously, we should be continuously investing. So instead of selling the profit, buy with the new investment the down asset. That's correct. That's right. You, you would want to buy into your lowest performing asset. Uh, it's a bit counterintuitive. People always want to buy into what's hot. And there's an argument about market momentum or this and that. But me personally, I want to buy what's cheap. I, I want to buy what's on sale because I get more of it. You know, if gold is down by 25% and stocks are up by 25%, I want to buy the gold because it's on sale, right? It's 25% discount. I don't necessarily want to buy what everyone else is interested in. And if you do that, you'll usually find you'll have pretty good performance and you'll be buying what everyone doesn't want. And next year, it could very well turn around that they want that all of a sudden. And now, look, you've stocked up on extra bits of it. Absolutely. And that's pretty much how we handle prepping in general. Everybody's freaked out right now about assault weapons. So everybody's out buying assault weapons and assault weapon uh, ammunition. And I know people will go, it's not an assault weapon, Jack. I, I, I know I'm using the word the media uses because people understand that. But the point is that people are out buying high capacity magazines and semi-automatic rifles. And they're like, what do I do? And I'm like, well, if you have firearms budget, buy shotguns and shotgun ammo right now. Uh, instead of paying, you know, $2,500 for an AR that's worth 900 bucks. And yeah. it's, it's the same approach, you know, where when, when, you know, one particular product is on, uh, is scarce and, and you put your money into the things that aren't scarce at that time. Exactly. You know, um, I, I, friends of mine do uh, uh, rifle instruction, and what they've been saying is they've seen a dip in student attendance because everyone's spending their money on guns. Well, now would be a good time if you wanted to go out and take a firearms course. You might be able to find them offering good deals for you. Now would be a really good time to consider doing that. So you can afford the ammo to go anyway. Yeah, that, that's <laughs> all, that's always the risk there. But um, you know, ammo sitting in the garage with no training. 
is uh, useless. Yeah, useless. Yeah, you got to know how to operate the weapon. Yeah, so, I mean, what I'm hearing here is diversity, and I, I have a term, a non-endearing term I use for the mainstream financial advisors in the world. I don't call them financial advisors. I call them financial liars, and they use the word diversify a lot, and diversify to them means uh, we pick a bunch of different funds, and all your money is in dollars and paper assets and stocks, and that's pretty much where all your money is, it's, and to me, that's not diversified. Now, you believe it's really important that we diversify, and it sounds like you have put some diversity in here with a bond, with stocks, with a hard asset like gold and or silver that's not there. Why do you think it's important that investors take that approach? Well, you know, Harry Brown talked a lot about this. We cover in our book. He had something called the 16 Golden Rules of Financial Safety, and he was really big on never uh, not only trusting a single investment, but never even trusting a single institution where you want to store your money. And that even includes maybe the own country where you live. So not only do we recommend diversifying your stocks, uh, we want you to use a, a broad-based stock index fund. They own 5,000 different companies. Uh, you know, maybe let's say Apple Computer recently was announced the largest company in America or something like that. Well, if you look at the stock index, they were maybe 4% of the total stock index. So even if Apple disappeared off the face of the earth tomorrow morning when you woke up, you read a newspaper article that says Apple no longer exists, okay, you'd be down 4%, right? It's not the end of the world. And you compare that to someone who takes a concentrated bet in a small number of stocks. You wake up in the morning, you find out Enron has announced some uh, particular booking uh, issues and they no longer exist. Well, you know, if you had all your employment retirement funds and, and Enron stock options, now all of a sudden you're not going to be retiring. And the uh, same thing with the, with the bonds. We recommend only buying U.S. Treasury bonds because they're at the top of the food chain in terms of being able to tax people or print money to get out of problems. Um, if you buy uh, lesser quality bonds, you'll find when the markets go south that those bonds go with them. Uh, same thing with the cash. We want you to own a U.S. Treasury bill fund for your cash because of the most liquid investment in the world. They're not like a bank. You know, a bank can go insolvent and you've got to wait for FDI to come in and bail them out uh, with U.S. Treasury bills. If those aren't trading, uh, you know, there's big problems, right? The U.S. Treasury has gone. You know, yep. here's here's the thing on that. This is this is, I think, important for people to understand, because I've been really hammering an issue lately that I think makes people think that I'm saying never buy a U.S. bond. And it's not what I'm saying. I've been hammering an issue that I've watched somehow a manipulation of 401k plans that have drastically, in, and in most cases, completely eliminated a true cash option from them. And the safe option now in these funds is basically government treasuries, uh, U.S. Treasury bonds, specifically longer-term bonds. And I believe that that's been done to help the government turn the debt over. It doesn't mean that I wouldn't invest in one. I'm pointing out the danger of the economy in the future and one of the preemptive moves that these people are taking. Because this is how I look at a U.S. bond, whether it's a short-term or a long-term treasury. Uh, when it comes down to it, it's dollars, right? So if I have cash in a mattress or a U.S. bond, if one becomes worthless, so does the other. And it yep. takes that to make them worthless. If, so you say, well, I have cash, so it's safer. It's if, if nope. the U.S. bond is gone, right, nope. then that cash is toilet paper. Yeah, that, that's absolutely right. You know, the Treasury is, again, at the top of the, the food heap. And, and one of the things we say in the book, um, even about FDIC bailing banks out, that, you know, if the U.S. government can't pay bills, notes, and bonds, if they can't pay the interest on those, everything else is kaput. 
right? The FDIC funding is not even going to be on the table if they can't make the payments to their bills, uh, to, you know, to the T-bills and bonds. So, yes, they are the safest bonds, even though we know they have certain risks. Every investment has risk. You know, stock market has uh, this risk that, that the economy could shrink. Uh, bonds have what they call interest rate risk, meaning if interest rates were to spike, the bond prices, bond prices could go down. Uh, cash has very bad inflation risk. If you're shoving that cash in a mattress and we get an Argentinian-style 20%, 30% inflation, you're losing a third of your money each year just sitting in there. And gold finally has what we call prosperity risk, which means if the stock market's doing well, nobody's going to want to really want to own that gold. And if the dollar's strong, no one's really going to want to own gold. So each investment has risks. And you got to understand what each risk is. And, and that's why we want you to own all these assets all the time, because we never know which one's going to be in favor or why you might need it. And it could be that the bonds in the future could have a problem. Uh, very well could be. Uh, but I, I don't know when that future is. Uh, you know, <laughs> Japanese bonds, for instance, they had a real estate crash in the late 80s. Their long-term uh, bond rates for their for their treasury bonds from the government have been about one to two percent for a generation now, about twenty or 30, almost thirty years. You know, so I you know we don't know, well, but you can you can exchange them. That's the you thing. You can. Even That's the, right. The rate has fallen on its ass. It doesn't mean that you can't take it down and, and, and get an exchange in, in Japanese currency for it. That, That's the exactly money right. is there. It, it is there. You know, if, if you woke up tomorrow and there was 50% inflation, you want to dump your treasury bonds, you'd at least get 50% back. You know, but if you, you own some lesser quality fixed income instrument, you know, from some other, you know, company out there, some company bond, they can't print dollars and that inflation might, might wipe them out. They, might, they just might get wiped out where the U.S. government could simply just shrug it off and just, uh, you know, you'll find someone who would buy it. I'm not saying it's great, but I'm saying you, you will get paid. And if you're not getting paid, then the U.S. Treasury is default, and the federal government no longer exists as a financial entity. So now it's like Plan B. Yeah, and that's <laughs> what gold is, right? So gold, because yeah. we were talking before we got the interview going, I think we have a very similar viewpoint of gold. Gold's the insurance policy. Yeah. So our numbers sound different, but I don't think they're that different because I'm a 10% gold guy. I'm actually not 10% gold. I'm 10% of a mixed precious metals, gold and silver. Uh, um, and my view, though, is... That's all your assets. So if you have equity in a home, that's part of the wealth that you need to be insuring with gold. If you have a business with a certain value, there's a percentage of that that needs to be insured with gold. And when you, when you look at that for people of a middle income and up, you're going to end up right back into 25% of your investments overall. Um, so, so what you were saying, though, okay, so people say, well, I got government bonds and dollars and stocks and the, the whole thing craps to the bed and, and, and all of these dollars become worthless. That's why that 25% of gold is there because that's going to, in a downturn, insure it, but in a complete collapse, also insure it, right? But that's correct. You know, and, and I even explain it to people who don't want to follow the permanent portfolio. We, we owe 25% because it balances the other 75% of the portfolio for this particular strategy. But there's some people, for whatever reason, they won't want to do that. They only want to own stocks and bonds. I would still encourage them to make your minimum 10% in gold in a hard asset. Because if you don't, and something very bad were to happen with the currency, um, you're going to really, really regret it. And, uh, you know, we were just talking about this before we came on the air. I was recently in Argentina this December, and they're having 20 to 30% inflation. And they, uh, I was in the southern part of the country, but in the northern part, they had riots in a grocery store, a couple people killed, and all sorts of stuff. So it's a really, really bad situation. You know, but the thing is, the official government inflation numbers are 10%. And economists in that country, if they report 
a number that's not the official number, they get threatened with fines and jail time. Okay, so the government will always lie about bad inflation happening. And when you have the gold, you basically rely on the markets to make the decision. If the market says inflation is 25% and that's what the gold price is going to do, it doesn't matter what speech Barack Obama gives on the subject. Okay, Correct. So th- Correct. That's it. It's end of story. And so one of the last parts of diversification that Harry Brown was big on, and we also talk about in the book, is even storing some money outside the country where you live. And this isn't a James Bond Swiss bank account. It basically is saying... Um, you can have the account in an overseas uh, custody storage. Uh, it's relatively cheap to do. You could do it for under 1% a year annual expense ratio in places where you actually can drink the water. Um, you know, you you fill out your tax forms each year as you're supposed to. So, yeah, let me ask you about that because that's yeah. a big issue for, for, for a lot of people because it's become very difficult for Americans to bank abroad. There's a, a, an yeah. account I always talk about down. It's with the Perth Mint in Australia. Anybody but an American citizen with some money can have one like that. You set up an account, they allocate gold to you, they even give you a Visa card basically, like a debit card, and you can go out and buy your wife dinner, and it, the gold exchanges the cash back and forth, so you're banking in gold. And everybody can have that but an American. So you're saying there are still opportunities for Americans to hold some capital outside the country. Yeah, there are. We, we basically call that soft capital controls. They basically are implementing rules and regulations to implement capital controls of the red tape instead of overtly coming out and prohibiting money from leaving the country. So, you know, to talk about the highest level, for instance, most Swiss banks at this point are not going to have anything to do with any American for whatever reason, no matter what you're worth. Period. Correct. Okay. And and the ones that even you're might, from Argentina. Come on, you're from yeah, Australia. Exactly. No problem. Well, you're from Guam. American. Sorry. You, you know what's funny about that? But you know what's funny about that is they keep a list of what countries are not allowed to do business with. Everyone always thinks these Swiss banks are all dirty, but they actually have the tightest uh, know your customer. Uh, requirements of basically any banking system on the planet. It's, you know, if you were to open an account in Switzerland, they're going to want you to show up in person. They're probably going to want your passport. You're going to have to leave for a couple hours. They're going to run you through Interpol. They're going to check other pieces of identification. But we're at, the United States is on a list of countries such as Afghanistan, North Korea, Colombia, all these other people that they won't do business with. You know, so we are with Iraq, with Iran, with North Korea, we're with all these other rogue nations as a place that they won't do business with. And, you know, but the thing is, so most Swiss banks are not going to take you. Um, there are some intermediaries you can work with in Switzerland still, but they each have very high minimums. Uh, we discussed some of that in the book for people who want that as an option. We have some other ones over there that are not banks, but they are gold storage facilities that will work with you directly. And also, uh, we also discuss options. Perth Mint is one. I think they do still take Americans, though. I actually did visit Perth uh, Mint and visited with their, their treasurer and, and one of their other uh, personnel down there who's responsible for the gold bullion trading desk. And I visited with them last May and saw their facilities. And um, they're still working with Americans. So you can't open an account there. You're in, in the U.S., you're probably going to have to work through a broker. But if you're over a certain minimum, then you can work directly with the Mint, which is what I'd recommend. We explain how to do that in the book as well. But there are okay. still options. Um, you know, again, you just have to make My sure. My understanding you- with Perth is you can hold assets, but you can't have the exchangeability of assets. That they're really Peter Schiff's really marketing that account heavily because it basically lets your cash flow be insured by gold. But he's only setting up people outside of the United States with it because he can't do it with American citizens. Yeah, and I think he's running those banks down the Caribbean and stuff. You know, my, my yeah. thing is really, um, I, 
I wouldn't put my money anywhere where I can't drink the water and I, I don't trust the government, right? So, you know, for us in the book, we discuss options for basically dealing with places in uh, Switzerland, dealing with Australia, and also dealing with New Zealand. And those are really the only three countries we really talk about. Singapore is another option. I just don't know much about it, but they're an up-and-coming one for a lot of Asian investors you're starting to use. They're kind of like a Switzerland of Asia. And, um, you know, so you really got to make sure – you trust the government because, you know, one of the big things you can get into with a lot of these these uh, um, issues of putting gold overseas is, you know, you might think you're making it safer, but you could be turning it into a legal or judicial system where you just can't get it back. And, you know, so I'd recommend people really be very careful about, you know, where they decide to put it. As far as gaining access to the money, um, yeah, that that is uh, potentially an issue with Perth. Perth's not a bank. They don't want to be a bank. They don't want to run under the regulations of a bank. They really just want to store precious metals. So that's probably – I can't speak for for them, but I, I would suspect that's probably why they're not getting involved in that. They really just want to buy and sell bullion, and they, they don't want to be a bank. It's, as soon as they start becoming a bank, they go to all those they, other crap yeah, regulations. Yeah, that, that's right. And they're also owned by the government of Western Australia, so they do have some limitations in their charter as to what they will and won't get involved in. Um, Perth Mint, I, I really like them. They're very conservatively run. They've been around for over 100 years. Uh, like I said, I've literally, I've physically been to Perth Mint. Um, they have a uh, facility in Perth. They also have a refining facility out near the airport. They refine each year about 10% of the, gold's world, uh, of the world gold production, so they're very major, major operation in the world of gold. So if you were going to use someone to store gold, Perth Mint is definitely on the list. So what do you think the best way to hold gold is and, and how we can do it safely, even if we are not talking about foreign holdings or anything like that? We're just talking about the average American that says, look, I'm in with this 25% plan. What type of gold should I buy and, and how should I hold it? Well, if you're just starting out, I would say you'd want to keep some gold near you for emergency purposes, um, you know, wh whatever that amount is. Um, and I would probably want to store it in like a safe deposit box at a bank or something like that. You know, there's some people who won't want to store who want to store it all at home. And, you know, I get it. And you have to weigh your own decision and your own situation, whether that's a good or bad idea. But all I'm going to point out is, you know, fire risk, burglary risk, relative stealing from you risk. You know, there's there's sorts of things there. If you, you put it in a bank safe deposit box, um, a little more safety there, and you can still get to it relatively quickly if there's an emergency. Now, after you get that emergency physical gold set up, then at that point, I might want to say, let's look at some uh, geographic diversification options. That basically means storing some gold outside the U.S. And we list some of those options out on the books, uh, in the book that are uh, relatively easy for people to um, uh, research and get into if they wanted. But if that was too much trouble, and I understand some people aren't going to feel comfortable doing that, there's a domestic bank called Everbank, which is doing segregated gold storage inside the U.S. And they were also about to start up a new program that would do guaranteed delivery. Uh, I'm sorry, they call it designated deliveries. So you could hold the account at Everbank, but you could designate you want the gold held in a in a Swiss vault, probably in Zurich out at the um, uh, Viamad vaults in uh, the Zurich airport. And then if you wanted delivery of the gold, you could show up in Zurich and your account would be there and they would hand it to you there. But you open the account up as an Everbank domestic client. So that's another option. Uh, the third option of these exchange traded funds that are very popular that's the most removed way to hold gold. They're the least recommended. If it's all you got, you know, do it. But um, in terms of insurance asset, it's not the best way to hold gold because there's a lot of people and pieces of paper between you and that asset. And the gold really is um, an insurance asset in the portfolio. So we really want you to hold it in, in a very particular and special way to make sure you can get to it if there is an emergency. 
Everbank's kind of interesting. There's people I've kind of kicked the tires on a few times and never really dug deep into, but they even do CDs that hold foreign currency and are insured for the U.S. dollars invested. And basically, at the end of the term of the CD, if you were holding Swiss francs or uh, you know uh, Brazilian currency or whatever, if it's higher, that's what you get, and if nothing else, you get your principal back. Uh, I'm a little risk adverse because of anything with paper and multiple layers starts to make me nervous. But they are an interesting institution, that's for sure. Yeah, they, they do offer some unique products. Um, I'm not very familiar with their foreign currency products, uh, just because I, I tend to avoid foreign currencies. Because I, if I'm not familiar with the political situation of a country, and you know, we talked before the interview, I've been to like 25 different countries by now, and the vast majority of them I would never put a penny in. <laughs> so, sure. you know, as, as bad as the U.S. could be in some cases, all I got to say is, well, you know, go visit Argentina, right? You know, I mean, you never know; it could always be worse. And um, so, in terms of EverBank. I, I like their physical uh, precious metal options because they're simple for people to set up. I, I don't know much about the, the foreign exchange. And generally for U.S. investors, um, I recommend, uh, you know, use your bonds and your cash. Keep it in dollars because that's what you spend. And, you know, you could get into something where you buy a bunch of the euro and then the euro crashes. Um, you know, could happen. Now all of a sudden you're a U.S. dollar investor, but you hold all these euros that are worth 50% less. So, you, you know, it's as a speculation, it's something people can look into. But, you know, for your core portfolio, I'd be very careful with that and primarily rely on your gold for your currency protection. Sure. I mean, the, the only reason I brought that up is because two of the nations that you specifically mentioned were Australia and Switzerland, and both of those are available with foreign currency CDs through EverBank, and it was just yet another way to put some diversity in there if someone wanted to. Sure, and that's definitely an option if uh, someone wanted to look into it. What, what we call is um, we call it a variable portfolio. So you have your permanent portfolio, which is the core 25% split, and the variable portfolio is basically your speculative money. So whatever you feel you can wager. And if you lost it all, it wouldn't affect you. That's what we call variable portfolio. So some people might find 25% in the stock market's not enough. They want to own 50%. I'd say, okay, take that money, call it your variable portfolio, and have at it. If you want to own Swiss francs, you can do that too. The only real rule there is you're not allowed to take money from your permanent portfolio to refund your variable portfolio if you take a loss. You know, so someone wants to go and, and wager it all on Apple and spin the, you know, the roulette wheel of the investing world. You know, that's fine. But, um, you know, we say, well, don't take any money from the permanent portfolio to do it. You're, you're more than welcome to speculate, but only do it with money you can afford to lose in the variable portfolio. The main reason I even brought that up, though, is because you and I did talk about how there are some uh, basically mutual funds that, that mimic this. But when I look at them, they're a little bit more variable. So there's the the uh, ticker symbol guys, and I can say right now, whenever I give you a ticker signal symbol on the show, it's for informational purposes only. I do not own this fund. I think you can do all of this if you want to on your own, but I give it to you for informational purposes. So this one is PRPFX, PRPFX. And when I look at that, I see, for instance, that they've dropped the gold to 20%. They've put 5% in silver for some metal diversification. 10% of the assets are in Swiss francs. So if a person wanted to emulate that, then that would be one way that they could do that if they wanted to put that diversity in there in a, in a fairly safe way and actually still have that money basically with the same assurances the U.S. dollar would be from the FDIC. Yeah, yeah, the, you know, the funds give you that one-stop uh, shop convenience, 
and uh, you can invest your money there, and they will mix the assets for you, as you point out. So if you didn't want to manage a portfolio yourself, uh, PRPFX is an option to consider. That fund's been around since the early 80s, so they got 30 years of history behind them. Uh, a relatively newcomer that came out last February is from Global X, and that's called the Permanent Fund, and that's the ticker symbol PERM, which follows a very similar, more of the 25% split that Harry Brown later um, you know, settled on. Uh, but both those funds are kind of the one-stop shop. And, and again, l- like you, um, I don't have a financial interest in these funds. I don't own them. I just list them out there as, as you can use them as, as an option. Uh, the only risk with a fund is what we call manager risk, which is basically the idea that the managers could do something, make a mistake, or make a bad call and do something. Now, both those funds are passively managed, so hopefully they won't do that. Uh, you know, but you never know. I mean, even the big boys like Vanguard, one of the leading industry passive investing, um, you know, in 2002, their bond fund managers messed up on their total bond fund index and they uh, missed the benchmark by 20% that year. So, I mean, you never know uh, what would happen, which is generally why I tend to lean on do it yourself. Uh, plus, when you do it yourself, you can have more control over things like the physical physical gold and, and the geographic diversification, which you just can't get in a fund. Well, and that's something you think is very important is having some geographic diversification, right? Yeah, I, absolutely. You know, my, my background is in um, Internet and computer security. I've been in that industry for a number of years. Uh, I've worked for a number of startups there. And, you know, I've seen all sorts of things. I used to get paid to break into computer networks for a living. Uh, part of that involved even auditing banks. And, you know, cyber attacks happen. Um, you know, sometimes systems go down. Sometimes hurricanes hit major financial centers. Sometimes earthquakes do. Sometimes major snowstorms do. Sometimes terrorists fly planes in the buildings and shut down the Wall Street for a week. I mean, you don't know what's going to happen. And if you have all your money at a single bank, um, certainly one that's concentrated in the U.S. financial district like New York City or Chicago, I mean, you know, there is a risk that something could happen. You know, I'm not predicting there is. I'm just saying, you you know, you don't know. And if you have some money outside the country, uh, you'll know you can always gain access to it no matter what's going on in the U.S., whether it's a natural disaster, whether it's civil unrest, whether it's some type of government decree. You won't be, you know, completely paralyzed in terms of your options. Um, I have a guy that comes on the air once in a while with me. I I love some of the work he does, but he's an all-in on precious metals guy, specifically all-in on silver. And, uh, again, I don't completely agree, but I'd like to hear you'd respond to one of his statements. When it comes to metals, his statement is if you don't hold it, you don't own it. If you can't touch it, it's not really yours. So uh, how would you respond to that? Well, you, you know, to a certain degree, that that's true. Um, you know, you look at MF Global. They uh, When they collapsed last year, all these people who had gold contracts found out that MF Global resold their gold and they've got nothing. You know, so that's always a risk. Uh, but at the same time, there's a logistics issue. Um, if you're growing your money over time, you just might not be able to store a bunch of gold coins under your bed at home. And again, there's always that risk that, you know, your kids or a relative comes in or your house cleaner and just pilfers it from you. I mean, you just don't know. Um, you know, so there's a balance here. Each person needs to decide. Uh, but I would also say that most of the time, you know, banks are a gold custodian. If they're a reputable company, have been around for a while, they're they're not going to be a problem. Now, I would not leave my gold at a gold dealer. If I bought it, I would just take delivery of it. You know, but if you were dealing with a Perth Mint in Australia, you know, what are the odds of Perth Mint owned by the government of Western Australia, AAA rated S and P? 
and they, they store $6 billion plus dollars in gold, you know, the odds of them going away would be a major disaster for Western Australia because gold and the gold mining industry is a huge part of that country's economy or that, that region's economy, and it would just be devastating to have the reputation of the Perth Mint uh, be flushed down the toilet. Same thing for these Swiss banks and Swiss custodians. They've been around for centuries. Um, some of these places have been around uh, almost as long as the United States, um, and they're just not really going to be stealing the gold. I, it, it's pretty low. So at some point, you're just going to have to punt and say, I can't store it all, and I would feel safe for having some of it outside the country um, just in case there were cold confiscations or something like that in the U.S. At that point, you just got to look at each place and you know, kind of make an educated decision whether or not you trust a custodian to hold it. And I had the same kind of talk with um, – with uh, Bron Sushecki over at the Perth Mint and quoted him in the book about it as well. You know, people are talking about unallocated gold at the Perth Mint and, you know, they don't trust the Perth Mint, but they'll use the Perth Mint to hold segregated gold. And, you know, they have a couple vaults at the Perth Mint, you know, and Bron's like, well, if I'm going to go in and steal your unallocated gold, why can't I just go into the vault right next to it and take the allocated stuff? You know, so, you know, so his whole point is if you don't trust the custodian for one thing, don't trust him at all. Trust for anything. Don't trust him for anything. You know, so, yeah. so it's kind of, it's kind of the same deal here. You, you either trust him or you don't. So in terms of gold buying here in the U.S., getting back to your question, yes, you should take physical possession if you're buying from a dealer. Don't let them store it from you. There have been problems in the past with that. But at some point, if you think, just logistically, it's not going to be possible for me to do it. You know, having a well-established uh, bank uh, hold it in a custodian agreement or a custodial agreement in a storage facility overseas, a place that's been around for a while, uh, it's not a bad option. What about this option? And I don't even know if this exists because I haven't even looked into it yet. But I would say if you're going to hold money in a country and you're calling it in that country because if something went wrong, you might go there to get out of this country. Well, you might want to go there first. You might want to actually have been there and, and, and know the lay of the land, so to speak. So physically, you may have occupied that space before. In the U.S. right now, I could go to my local bank right down. There's one a mile and a half from here. There's like two branch locations. It's about as anonymous as banking gets other than anything you open, especially even with safety deposit box after the Patriot Act. Considered a financial relationship, but I can go down there and say, I'd like a safe deposit box, please. They'll give me a little bitty one for about 12 bucks a year. They'll give me a great big one for 60 And I can put anything I want in there. And nobody catalogs that or inventories that except me. If I'm smart, I want to know what I have in there. And I can go down to a coin shop and buy an ounce of gold, a quarter ounce of gold for cash. And I walk away with that gold, and it's like buying a, a coffee mug. And I can go stick that in there. And over time, I can build up that gold. And it's really not on the books, so to speak. Yep. Is there any option for an American that says, likes Switzerland or likes Australia as this geographic point to take a vacation and go basically buy a safe deposit box there or a private secure storage facility and go into the local economy and drop ten grand on gold and stick it in there. Does that exist? Sure, you can. Um, again, in, in the book, we do list out a couple options for safe deposit boxes in places like Austria or even Australia. Um, New Zealand also has uh, New Zealand Mint. We talk about them. They'll do segregated gold storage, or they'll also do safe deposit boxes. And they're in Auckland, and again, I physically visited them as well, so I got to see their facilities. So there are options to do it. Now, there are a couple caveats here. Number one is I, I've had people in the past write me about taking a large amount of gold across the border. Uh, my answer is do not do that. 
Okay, number no. one is it could be seized by the TSA goons here in the U.S. And number two is, you know, if you go into a country like Australia, New Zealand, or Switzerland, uh, maybe Switzerland won't care, but Australia, New Zealand, if you go in and, and you don't declare that you have certain financial assets, they find it, you know, you got to think, what are you going to tell the border security officer? Well, sir, we see you have, you know, you know, two kilograms of gold here. What are you up to? I mean, what do you say? And then, you know, at that point, they're probably going to take it. Now, in terms of going to that country and buying the gold, yeah, sure. You know, you could go to a place like New Zealand Mint. They have a bullion desk right there. You could buy right there. You could buy the safe deposit box right there, and you could put your money in it right there and take the key with you. You can do that. But, you know, again, in terms of taking cash, if you take more than $10,000 cash in any country, you got to declare it. So I would not recommend sure. doing that. You know, but sure, you could, you know, move the money in. Um, you know, via wire and do it that way. That that's totally possible. Um, some of these banks might not deal with Americans, but some might. Uh, some of these dealers will allow you to wire money straight to them, and they'll do the gold purchase for you. Then you can just pick it up right there at the desk. That's another option as well. So yeah, you you can do that and stay off the books. You know, again though, logistically. You know, for instance, New Zealand men, if you'd open a safe deposit box, they can't go in it. You know, once they hand you the key, legally they can't go in unless you don't pay. And even then, they got to give you tons of notice. And then there's some court things you have to go through in order to remove the assets. So if you wanted to rebalance the gold, it's a problem. You know, what I would say is, again, maybe a custody account where you could call up the broker to say, add two ounces of gold to my account. And you just do that every now and then instead of having to fly to Auckland <laughs> would be a would be sure. a better solution. But yes, definitely I agree with you. You know, if you're thinking of putting money in a country, if you can do it, you know, you can go there and and check it out. If you can't go there, um one site I like is Transparency International. They have their annual corruption index where they list out all the countries rated per, uh, rated corruption uh perceptions and look at the country and if the country is rated as being you know corrupt or near corrupt, they have a nicer little colorful map there. I think it's transparency.org or something like that. But if you go there, um, look to see if the country, if some guru is saying put all your money in this offshore account, and you go there and that country is bright red, watch out. Right? You know, just don't just don't do it. You, you'll notice countries that I would recommend, like Switzerland, New Zealand, Australia, or Canada, places like that. They're all bright green, very very safe, not corrupt countries, very strong rule of law. Um, you know, so you kind of, kind of have to use your head a bit. If you can't fly to Auckland and you want to use New Zealand Mint, or you can't fly to Perth and you want to use the Perth Mint, you know, look into the place and make sure you're comfortable with it. And, and generally speaking, you know, avoid any country where you can't drink the water. Yeah, I, I would completely uh, concur with that. And it'd be fair to Peter Schiff when we mentioned him briefly. And you talked about him working with banks in the Caribbean. Uh, he's holding gold in Australia. He just locates his business in the Caribbean so that he can actually do it. Um, because as an American citizen, a lot of this stuff has been taken off the table in recent years. Yeah, it is. And it is a concern. Um, you got to wonder, you know, Kind of why they building a, why they building a wall up here? Um, you know, countries that implement capital controls like overtly, um, it's usually like time to get out, right? Um, yeah, and that's part of honestly. That's part of what, what worries me about this. I'm watching my nation do what other nations have done in the past. And it's always ended in the same way, and it's never pretty. No, no, the the movie we know how it ends. Um, you know, hopefully the U.S. will not do that, but but right now they're making it very very hard. Even if you're an American expat living overseas, a lot of these banks won't do business with you. Now the cynic in me thinks that the banking industry in the U.S. pushed for these regulations because it would force the money to come back to the U.S. banks. 
right? <laughs> if I was being cynical, yeah. and I'm probably yeah. correct, but you know, the the end result too is it puts a lot of the money under the control of the U.S. You know, and as long as you are disclosing the funds to the IRS and U.S. Treasury, there's a form you fill out each year to disclose the account and you pay your taxes, there's not a problem. But because of permanent portfolio, we do very, very infrequent rebalancing. There's going to be virtually no taxable transactions on the gold allocation. So other than the fact that it just sits there and go and grows in value, there basically should be really no taxes you're paying on unless you're there doing a lot of trading, which we never recommend you do anyway. So in terms of running an account overseas... It, it's really not a big deal. Uh, you know, try to eliminate middlemen as much as possible. If you could deal with the Perth Mint directly, do it. You know, if you could deal with New Zealand Mint directly, do it. If you can deal with Global Gold, another company in Switzerland, we recommend, you know, do it. That's always the best. But if you have a smaller amount of money, you can gradually work up to it. So, for instance, New Zealand Mint, generally, if you're under about $50,000, I think they, they want you to deal with a U.S. broker. And they'll sell you certificates. I think the face value's a thousand or ten thousand each. I don't remember now. But once you get over a certain amount, then you can deal with the Perth Mint directly. And as you grow your assets over time, it may be that all of a sudden you find you meet their minimums. Now places like New Zealand Mint, which we talk about, they don't have a minimum. You can buy a single gold coin and store it, and they'll charge you one percent a year, right? And they'll store it in their vault in Auckland. They're a half block away from the Central Auckland Fire Department, a half block away from the Central Auckland Police Department. They're very nice people. They run a couple of vaults there, and they're really trying to turn their business into a storage facility. Really good people to deal with. So if you have a small amount of money, even you have an option to do geographic diversification as well. So, you know, it all depends. We give a lot of different options in the book, all the way from the high rollers down to people who only have very modest means but still want to get some protection. Yeah, absolutely. I, I completely concur with that. So how can people learn more about you, your work, and get your book? Well, I uh, do run a blog. It's an anagram of my name. It's uh, crawlingroad.com. We also run a forum that we talked about the permanent portfolio. It's called gyroscopicinvesting.com, and we have a lot of people there who talk about it. Uh, the book itself, you can go to Amazon. It's just called The Permanent Portfolio, Harry Brown's Long-Term Investment Strategy. Uh, it also usually links to another book by the late Harry Brown called Fail Safe Investing, which is another good introductory book to read. Our, our book here is kind of middle of the way of how to implement it. Fail Safe Investing is a very basic introduction to it, uh, but it might lack some details on how to go about doing it in today's world. But both those books are very good to check out and uh, definitely would appreciate it. Uh, also on um, harrybrown.org and my website, I also host Harry Brown's old investing radio podcast shows. They are kind of timeless. You can listen to him. He doesn't talk about current market events. He talks about general investing principles and economics. And if you have the time, there's probably a couple dozen of them there. They'd definitely be worth a listen to. I think a lot of your listeners might enjoy what he has to say. And uh, I know we've been talking a lot about gold in this podcast, but you know the portfolio does hold stocks, bonds, and cash as well. And we discuss how to own those correctly as well. Because you know the gold market might not always be doing well. And if you sure. own just gold... And, the, and the, the gold market crashes, and you really get scalped. So we really strongly, strongly encourage people to own all the assets all the time, regardless of what we might personally think is going to happen, uh, because we don't know, and we always want to be in a position where we're not going to lose a bunch of money, but we can also gain money if one of the other segments turns around. Yeah, and I think we talked about gold more, because it's the one that confuses people more about how do I actually do it. I mean, when it comes to how do you old, old U.S. Treasury bonds, well, you buy them. 
Yep. Right. Yep. It's, it's it's cut and dry. Short term paper. You have an account that trades short term paper. You want an aggressive growth index stock. Well, you go out and pick one of the uh, fund, and you you pick out one of the the twenty, thirty, forty million funds out there that do that. There's more funds than there are actually stocks today. So it's easy to buy and hold those paper assets. It's a little bit more of a question of well, what do I do with this lumpy yellow and and white metal? Exactly. That's uh, definitely one of the issues a lot of people get held up on. You know, I, I could tell people very easily how to implement it. You could go to Vanguard. You could buy the Vanguard Total Stock Market Fund, uh, the Vanguard Treasury Long-Term Bond Fund, and the Vanguard Short-Term Treasury Fund, and you would get 75% of the portfolio done. After that, you got to buy the gold. And you can't buy gold mining companies. Those are stocks. You want to actually own physical metal. And at that point, like you said, um, I, I feel in our book, we have the most extensive discussion of the gold market and the best way to buy and sell and hold that asset of any book out there. And, you know, I, I know I'm not being very modest, but we researched the heck out of this. I physically, I've been to Switzerland. I've been to Perth. I've been to Auckland. Um, I've visited and talked to other people. I've talked to the president of Everbank for this book. I mean, we have looked at this issue forward and backwards. We don't mention it in the book. It's not that we don't know about it. It's just that we might not recommend it. And we're just being diplomatic. Um, you know, so we would strongly recommend if you, even if you don't want to follow any of our advice, but you just want to know how to buy gold, the book is probably going to have the most in-depth discussion on that particular topic you're going to find out there. Well, very cool, and I appreciate you being with us here today, and I appreciate your viewpoint into a confusing and uh, often misunderstood world. I know you've cleared up a few things for me on foreign holdings for U.S. citizens today, so uh, thank you for that as well. Yeah, great. Thank you. I really appreciate being here. And, folks, with that, this has been Jack Spirica today along with Craig Rowland, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you. A better way You don't have to be Another face in the crowd Don't have to live the way they tell you to Make your own way Others will follow Someday we'll realize our children just can't pay. Nobody up there cares, they're living for today.